one, biscuits made. Day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, right? Birds, the fishes, the sea, and then, then there's naked Adam in the garden, right? And, and there we go, right? Sunday school lesson over. It's much more deeper than that. I want us to see here and to help us understand a little bit that each day is building upon the next, and each day corresponds with another day. And as a matter of fact, I want to break this down for you, as you'll see here. Chapter 1 gives us sort of a broader view of creation, and chapter 2 is going to be detailed specifically in giving us a little bit more of the order, but as well as the account of Adam and Eve and the foundations of who man is. Uh, where man has been placed, what God has done. And man is the peak point of God's creation because it is only going to be in Adam that he breathes and makes him a living soul, that he makes him an eternal being, right? This is why we look around at the rest of the world and we look at animals and natural life. It does what it does, but there is something different about mankind. There is something, it, it's sad, right? Don't get me wrong. I, I'm going to be sad one day when my, my dog passes away. But it's a different ball game when a human being passes away. Because that hu- human being is made in the image of God that has been formed and fashioned by God and breathed the breath of life as a living, eternal soul into him with a great purpose. And now, uh, I want to address this because this is something that's kind of new for me to kind of wrap my brain around too as I've been learning and studying this whole chapter. We find day one, day two, and day three show us the broad creation of the form of what's about to be made, what's about to be what we're going to call the fullness, which is the specific creation. Another way of looking at this is we're going to find it is tonight we're going to look at day one, which is the light and the dark, verses three to five. Then day two, the sea and sky, right, in verse six, uh, six and eight. Uh, day three, the, the fertile earth and preparation for what's to come later on. Uh, verses 9 to 13, and that's just the form. It's the broad creation. It's setting up for day 4, 5, and 6 where we don't just have light and dark, but now we have the sun, moon, the stars, the galaxies, the planets, the universe, the black holes, the everything, right? The whole nine yards. Then in day 5, we're going to have not just sea and sky, but we're going to have the creatures that are in the sea and the creatures that are in the air. Then in day 6, we're going to have not just the earth that's prepared for life, but we're going to have actual life on the earth, the creatures of the land, and specifically, and at the peak, Adam himself. Now, the reason why we look at this and we see how one builds upon another, we find this. Day one points to what? Day number four. So that means that day number two points to what? Day number five. And then day number three points to day number six. Each one is corresponding, but what do days 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 point to? Day number 7. As you all know, as we read through this chapter, day number 7 comes to a peak as we begin in chapter, uh, rather, into chapter 2, as it begins with the seventh day, which is what? The Sabbath, the day of rest. God makes the Sabbath not for God, but rather for man. And so we find that this all has a higher purpose. What happens on the day of rest, on what we call the Sabbath? Well, for you and I, as New Testament believers, we call it the Lord's Day. It's the day of Jesus' resurrection. It's the first day of the week, the literal day, as we celebrate. That's why we gather on Sunday mornings. That's why we gather. Uh, it's because of our risen Lord. But we do so specifically to gather and to do what? To worship God. So now when we see the big picture here in Genesis 1, day 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 points to day 7, which is a day of rest and worship. 
Everything is meant in creation, not that we would worship creation, but that we would worship the creator. So everything that is being made in days one through six is to point us to rest in who God is, to rest in his promises, to rest in his word, to rest in his power, and ultimately that we might worship him so that in all things he gets the glory of which he alone deserves. Furthermore, days one, two, and three show us what others might call the, um, the creative realm, right? And then we find days four, five, and six show what we might call uh, the creative rulers, right? We have in days one, two, and three, the light and the dark, the sea and the sky, the fertile earth. And those are just realms, if you will. But then verses, uh, chapter, excuse me, days four, five, and six, we have the lights of the day and night. We have the creatures of the water and the air. We have the creatures of the land. We find that those are the ones that are going to be set forth to rule that part, to live in that part, to take care of that part, to be the, the breath of life, to be the life givers and producers in that part of God's creation. Each one serving its purpose. Because each day has a purpose. Not just to bring forth a day, but it has the greater purpose to show us the God who created that day, who made the day to even happen, to bring forth the night, uh, to show us once more the dawning of the day and God's new mercies every morning, to show us God's providence and power, to show us his divine sovereignty over all of his creation. And it's all his creation because, as we're about to find in verse number three, and God said, meaning God speaks and it happens. Nothing exists without God, not just knowing, but decreeing that it is there. Uh, everything in this world exists because of God. And this is thousands of years later after creation. We find that everything that ever has life, everything in this world, everything in this universe is known by God because he's the one that said, let this happen, and that happened. So, the word day here. The word day is of interest. It says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light that was good, and he divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and then he called the dark night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. Now, the word day is going to be used a multitude of times in chapter 1. And I'm bringing this up first as sort of some background and some broadening things to kind of solidify some issues and questions that might be at hand. As a matter of fact, one of the great questions of the day is, how old is the earth? As a matter of fact, I've been asked that just this past week. How old is the earth, right? It's older than you. It's older than me, all right? So now we're getting there, right? We're getting a little bit closer. Um, it's, it's older than even grandma and granddad and so much more. But roughly what uh, creationists, and, and I would certainly refer you to, and as I will later, to AnswersInGenesis.org. And if you don't have access to internet but you have a question, come see me and ask me. Write it down in there, and I'd be happy to either give you a resource or to try to give you the best answers possible. Um, but what I'm wanting to do is, as we study this, is to focus less on trying to prove to you who God is and what he did. Because if you are a believer in Christ, you should hold to his word. However, my goal is to point you theologically and doctrinally so that we would grow more sound in trusting the grand scope and scheme of all of the creation and redemption account throughout all of human history. Now, the word day is the word yom. Uh, it is used uh, a multitude of times, not just here in chapter 1, but all throughout Scripture, specifically in the Old Testament, dealing with the Hebrew language. But it is one that normally, and pretty much like Germex, 99.9%, it is referencing a literal and full 24-hour day. Now, the Hebrew calendar and clock is much more different than the Americanized calendar and clock. 
We do everything based on how we do it. Even the way that lives happen in other countries today, in modern countries, things happen differently. The way that they view the time that you're supposed to work, right? Or the, even the time that they consider day, it might be sun up to sun down, it might be sunset to sun up, and all this stuff. They, they, they go through that way. But regardless of which way you shake it, the moment that God speaks and creates the heaven and the earth, what begins to happen is God, as he's about to create each day, is going to spin this earth around one more time. And that's what happens. We are constantly, throughout a year, we are revolving around the sun. And each day and night, a one full 24-hour day, as it is used here with the word yom in Hebrew, it is God spinning this earth around one full time. Now, you and I uh, have no idea, but right now we are traveling a couple thousand miles an hour. That's pretty quick, isn't it, right? That's faster than our cars are doing, right, on the way to church. It's faster than anything else on this earth is going. It is incredibly fast, yet we don't feel it. Why? Because God is God. And God is the one who is able to make and create the laws of the universe of which everything else follows. Why does the universe follow the laws that it follows? Because God speaks. Now you say, well, preacher, I've read Genesis 1, and it, I don't see it say the law of gravity, the law of aerodynamics, the law of this and the law of that. So where is it? Well, it's found when it says, and God said. <laughs> that's, that's it. As we've talked about the name God, the word God itself, as who he is, as this omniscient, almighty, powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, this one true God, and there is no other comparison to this God, when he speaks and it happens, it happens. And so we can try to go, well, unless I find it in black and white. Well, it's found in black and white when, and God said. God speaks, it's spoken, therefore it is done. I, I want to give you a little bit of a picture, though, as well. With the word day and with all of creation, what God makes and does in the heavens, he is picturing on the earth. Or rather, what happens on the earth is supposed to be picturing what has happened in the heavenlies. If you want to, you can turn with me for just a moment to Isaiah um, 40. Be reading verse number 22 for just a second. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22. It says, And it is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. If you're a flat earther tonight, I'm sorry, God called it a circle. All right? So flat earth, squashed. It is circular. Uh, it is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. Now, before I get into the rest of verse number three, I want to bring our attention to this verse for a reason. What God is doing is he's about to outstretch the heavenlies and create light and dark and create the earth and begin to form it and, and begin to prepare it for life. Because as we're going to see, every time that he uses the word good, it means that it is, when he declares it good, it means that it's fit for and being prepared to be fit for life. That's what God is doing. It is for mankind's good that God is working and doing this. When we read and understand Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, and we find that it is God who sits upon the universe. It is him who sits upon the throne. It is, um, as, as we even find just back a, a verse, have you not known, have you not heard, hath it not been told unto you from the beginning that ye have not understood from the foundations of the earth? Right? It is he who's there from the foundations of the earth. He's the one that makes the foundations of the earth. Even back just to verse 17, all nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted for him less than nothing in vanity. Right? To whom then will you liken God? What likeness will you compare unto him? That's why when we see, and God said, that is enough. 
But verse 40, excuse me, verse 22 of chapter 40, what this does for all of the rest of the days that we're about to study is it paints the pictures of what God is doing on the earth as he is creating it. From the light, the dark, the sun, the moon, the stars, the earth, the inhabitants of the earth, the sky and the sea, and the inhabitants of the sky and sea, what it is doing is pointing to a divine wor- uh, to, a, to a worship of who he is. In Isaiah 40, chapter 22, there's a couple of key things. That he stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain. Right? If you go home and you've got curtains in your windows or whatever, what happens, right? You open, close, you stretch them out, right? Close everything up. Right? For him, he stretches out them as a curtain, and then the next phrase, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. Our God is the ever-present God, but in this creation, what is he doing is he's making a place for his creation to dwell, for mankind to dwell, so that he might uh, walk and show his glory to man to ultimately one day redeem a people unto himself so that they might enjoy God forever, and that's what you and I will do in a new creation or new heaven and a new earth. But we find that the cosmos... The universe is the heavenly temple. It is the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly temple of God where He alone dwells. But like the earthly temple and tabernacle, it has a tremendous amount of typology, which is something that is taken as a a literal thing that is literally there, like the temple or the tabernacle. But each piece literally has a typology that points to something greater. Now, the reason why I bring this up is as we find Isaiah 40.22, it deals with showing us how everything that God is doing is to reveal the heavens that he has created and to reveal his godliness, his holiness, his creative power and being. The earthly temple's colors were made much of blue and purple and scarlet, which we find those same colors in the colors of the heavenlies. If you look into any sort of a astronomy book and you find the colors of the galaxies or even the night sky or even a sunrise, you might find these colors or variations of those colors. You also might find, uh, as in the temple, we see that there was woven figures of, of winged creatures woven into the curtains themselves. Why was that? Because then there was lampstands. In, in, in Solomon's uh, temple, there were uh, ten of the lampstands in there which would illumine up the place and would create it to where as the light reflects from the curtains and we see the figures and off of the other instruments that all point to a worship of who God is, and ultimately also picture Christ, uh, our prophet, priest, and king, is what it does is these things would light up and would point to the heavenlies, always reminding those that enter the temple or the tabernacle that it is God and God alone who created all things. That is our very foundation. If we neglect that God is the creator, then we miss out that he is the one that we answer to and the one that holds everything else together. And that is where the leap is that the average atheist or agnostic or even the average Christian, so-called, does not want. They are fine with going, well, you know, God kind of wound it up and let it go. Well, that's not the case. God is very much involved in everything. But what happens is we make that jump. We have to make that jump of understanding that God is the creator, therefore I am created by him, therefore I have purpose, and therefore God is doing a work in me and through me and and for my good and for his glory. And so we find a much greater and a bigger picture. And we find then back here in Genesis 1, verse 3, as God said, let there be light, and there was light. That God rules over the light and the dark, and that nothing escapes his rule. Now, moving forward here 
I want to deal with the, the gap three for just a moment. There's many who say that in between verses two and three and one and two and all this stuff, there's this wide range of gap. They say, well, it could have been millions and billions of years through that. Do not believe so. One, grammatically, the word yom, it would not make sense or allow for such. Two, historically and, and literally and, and even uh, typologically, there is no evidence showing that there would be this sort of massive gap. The reason why this became popular is during the late, uh, mid to late 1800s, there was a, a rise coming off the Age of Enlightenment where uh, really it's just a new wave of, of Gnosticism, where man believed that they had a higher enlightenment or thought and understanding of who God is and about the created order of the around the world, and so they believed that they were much more than just man, that they had a higher knowledge. Uh, furthermore, the Age of Enlightenment at the tail end, what takes place is uh, this sort of Darwinian and Marxist revolution, which we're still experiencing now, truly what we're facing in our nation today is the effects of a Marxist-Darwinian mentality and teaching. And so that's, that's what happened in that time. And at the time, the church did not have much of an answer for it. Um, a, a gentleman, of course, most of us probably even have a study Bible, C.I. Schofield, right? The, the original Schofield Bible, he tried his best to try to answer, and he did so with a, a gap theory. And many others did so too. Um, now, the second generation of the Schofield Bible corrected and helped that along. And by the way, every scientific discovery that has taken place since then has pointed not to billions of years, not to millions of years, not even to different ages and all this stuff, but has rather pointed to a literal creation, a young earth, and to the fact that that young earth at one point in time experienced a great catastrophe, which did kill off many different kinds of animals and change the world um, uh, geographically um, and, and astronomically forever. And that is the great flood where God judged mankind. And since then, we find that only that truly does explain the way in the world uh, the, the, which it is. I highly recommend, if you can, if you want to take vacation, go to the Creation Museum and, and the Ark exhibit in Kentucky. Go, 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 go. Um, you will learn a tremendous amount. You will get to see and experience a lot of things. And if you can't go there, if you have Internet and want answers, go to AnswersGenesis.org for many great resources that you can buy and read. But they have pretty much, if you type in any question you might have about Genesis, you're pretty much going to find an answer. They are tremendous in the work that they do to explain these things. But ultimately what we find is that we must be able to do what? Trust the Scripture. God speaks, and God said. I will read these verses for you. Um, I've already discovered that I've taken quite more time than I thought. Um, my wife and Sharon are both correct. Um, <laughs> oh, Isaiah chapter 45 tells us a couple of things I want to look at. Verse 18 of Isaiah 45. This is good stuff. Not because I did it, but because of what God says here. This is tremendous what God reveals about who he is to us. He says in Isaiah 45, verse 18, For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. Is there any other Lord? No. Is there any other God? Is there anyone like our God? No. Is there anyone else that could create or could speak and it happened? No. God and God alone. But in this, we also find the reiteration of what we've already studied in verses 1, 2, and 3 so far is that God speaks, God creates, and we heard and learned last Tuesday that the earth was without form and void. What do you find in Isaiah? God declares himself. He's the one that created the heavens. But he's also the one that formed the earth and made it established it and created it not in vain, but formed it to be inhabited. 
So each day of creation is not just so that we might learn a little Sunday school lesson as a child and go, see, you know, God did this, and it's nice sunshine, and then there's, there's another day, and then there's water, yay, right? There, here's an animal cracker. It's not, that's not what it's for. It, it's so that we would know this God who's revealed himself and said, I have created, and I alone, and therefore, I am worthy of worship, and we should worship him. When we read verses 1, 2, and 3, and 4, and 5, and 6, and 7, and 8, and 9, and throughout all the rest of the chapter, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, it points us to a doxology of worshiping God. It is far deeper than trying to prove to the atheist about all the scientific facts and all of the research and all the things that do prove a young earth and do prove that God certainly created. Because how can this world come from nothing? Or how can order come from chaos? It will not happen. right? If you were to take my truck apart, which you'd have to do it because I don't know how to do it. I, I could probably beat it to death, maybe, but I don't want to do that. I, it's my truck. If we were to take that truck apart, or your car, make it somebody else's car. If we were to take apart your car, right, and we were to put it in the back gym, and we were to lock up the gym from all doors, and we were to barricade it and take every part and leave it all throughout, and we were to come back a million years later, a million years later, would that car be put together? No. Nope. Not even if we left the mechanic in there with a, with a screwdriver. It's not going to happen. Millions of years don't add up. Uh, uh, the, the order out of chaos does not add up. The reason why for the scientists of the day, for the textbooks of the day, and the, the many other things add up today for those who disagree with the Scripture, it is because it is not scientific fact, but it is because of religion. It is a spiritual belief to believe in evolution it is a spiritual choice and belief and religion to not believe that there is a god to answer to however whether they want to admit it or not they will one day because the same with you and i all life shall stand before god because it is he who created the heavens he who formed the earth he who created it and made it inhabited he is the lord and there is none else back up a few verses in chapter 45 of isaiah we find verse number five. I am the Lord and there is none else. We've heard that before. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, thou that hadst not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. What is Isaiah being preaching the word of God? What is God doing through Isaiah? He's telling Israel, I am your God and there is none else. Why? Because Israel at this time had gone whoring after other gods. And that's what God said. He said, you've, you've committed adultery. And we find, why do we point back to this? Because we see who God is that he's created. And because of Genesis 1-1 and 2 and 3 and every other portion that shows a divine account of creation, not story of creation, not made up belief of creation, not fairy tale of creation, but the divine act in speech of God creating all things for our good and His glory, for His good pleasure and goodwill, we find that there is no way out of bowing our knee before Him. We'll either do so humbly now and knowing and trusting and getting to enjoy fellowship with our God who created us and formed and fashioned us and indwells us, or there will be a sad day where there will be everyone who else has rejected the Lord will bow their knee, but not in salvation, 
but out of reality that this is God and they will wish that they had another chance and there will not be that chance because He is the Lord and there is none else and they refuse to bow the knee now. This points to a greater thought that God is speaking here. And He's not speaking in some sort of strange way or mystical way. He speaks audibly and boom, everything takes order and shape as He had planned. He says in verse 7, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Drop down, ye heavens, from above and let the skies pour, out, pour down righteousness. Let the earth open and let them bring forth salvation. Let the righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe unto him that striveth with his Maker. To the atheist and agnostic and to even those who refuse to bow their knee or to the believer out there who might be saved but does not trust Genesis 1, 1 or 2 or 3, woe unto you tonight. May we get our hearts right and truly bow our knee before this God. Because when we deny one verse of Scripture, whether it be Genesis 1 or Revelation 22, we are rejecting God and His Word. We are striving against our Maker. As he goes on to say in the Old and the New Testament, what can that which is formed say to that which forms it? What can the clay, the dirt, say to the potter? Nothing. Because he alone is God. Let the potsherd strive, the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, what makest thou, or, uh, or thy work he hath no hands? Woe unto him that saith unto his father, what begettest thou, or the woman, what hast thou brought forth? Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and His Maker, ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the works of my hands. Command ye me. I have made the earth and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens and all their host have I commanded. What a God we serve. But Isaiah paints the picture. I'll share with you as well one verse from Amos. Forgotten prophet. A man who is simple and called by God and preached an unpopular message. Amos chapter 4 verse 13. For lo, he that formeth the mountains and createth the wind and declareth unto man what is his thought that maketh the morning darkness and treadeth upon the high place of the earth, the Lord... The God of hosts is His name. God creates, not just because He can, but so that all of His creation would know Him. It is in you, in your heart, in your soul, in your mind, in your very essence and being to have fellowship. Even more specifically and deeper, it is designed that you and I would have fellowship with the Lord our God who made us and created us and sustains us. But there is something that breaks that fellowship. And what is it? Our sin nature. That is why we must be born again so that we can come back into proper fellowship and restoration and redemption with who God is. I want to read for you this commentator about showing just God's power. The K&D commentary writes, the Word of God went forth to the primary material of the world, now filled with creative powers of vitality, to call into being. Out of the germs of organization and life which it contained and in the order pre 
preordained by his wisdom, those creatures of the world which proclaim as they live and move the glory of their creator. When God creates and God says in verse 3, and God said, we find that God speaks with all knowledge. God speaks with all power. God speaks with all authority. One of the dangers of believing in a gap theory or theistic evolution as others may refer to it today, there are many who I know who are Christians who say that they are um, believing that God, you know, used evolution, you know, to make everything. There is a Hebrew word for that, and it's baloney, right? Baloney. It did not happen that way. What it does is it has and shows that that individual has a low view of who God is. A dangerously low view of who God is and a dangerously high view of who man is. And so, as a matter of fact, there's, a, there's popular songs today that even get sung, even in the Christian circles and in, in Christian world. There's a song uh, uh, that uh, Hillsong sings um, that deals with that. There's a small, tiny little piece about that big of the second verse that says that the earth is evolving in pursuit of what you set. Hogwash. The earth is not evolving in what he set as if he was some sort of old man with a long beard and decided to make a clock and then just wound it up and said, well, we'll see what happens with this thing. God knows every thought, every heart, every individual long before that individual or heart was ever even come into existence. Life is so precious because it is God who speaks and makes it. It is God who declares it. It is God who in eternity past knew where you would be tonight. Knew the day that you would be born, to whom you would be born to, where you would be born, how you would hear the gospel, when you would believe the gospel, when you would be sanctified, how you would be used by him, and even more so, the day that you will leave this earth. And he knew that not by going, well, uh, let me put together all these different things that they might do. I don't know, good, bad, and ugly, right? All the billions upon billions of people that have been on this earth and the thousands of years that we've been here, roughly, I'd say between six and 8,000 at most. I lean more towards the six, right? 6,021, maybe. <laughs> what we find, though, is that God is not just winding things up as a theistic evolutionist would say and say, well, God is real, but he used this to take place. No. God used his divine knowledge and power and authority. So when we read the phrase, and God said, and we're going to find that, mind you, let's look through Genesis 1, verse number 3, verse number 6, verse number 9, verse number 14, verse number 11. Because I missed that one. Because I didn't plan for this. It just happened. <laughs> you keep on going through. Verse 20. And on and on and on. Every time that we find that phrase, and God said, underline it, circle it, and know that this is the divine knowledge, powerful, sovereign, holy God who is speaking and creating as He pleases. This is not chance. And what that does for your soul is gives you hope. It gives you purpose. Because you're not made by chance or chaos or order. And you're not supposed to live in a chaotic life. You're supposed to live in an orderly life and decent before God. Why? Because He is an orderly God. He is holy. He is just. He is good. 
and, and what happens in the heavenlies and who he is is how this is supposed to happen. And that's why we look at the earth today and the things that happen around us. When we see the news reports and we see the devastation, the destruction, it should not make us so angry at the world, but it should break our hearts to the fact that the world does not know the God that it should. And instead, the world looks at the world and worships false gods or turns and suppresses the truth and righteous not to worship anything at all. Only God can speak something like this universe into existence. Only God can do such a thing. God does as God does as He wants and as He wishes. I want to begin here. I've got 15 minutes. That's fine. Y'all still good? All right. Just checking. Let there be light. And there was light. Simple, yet so deep and profound. As we're about to find, then God does not just create light, but separates the light from the darkness. The light is the form of what we're going to see later on in day four as the sun. It is the fullness later on in day four. Right? Day, day one, as we talked about, day one pointing to day four, day two pointing to day five, day three pointing to day six, and all six pointing to day seven. And mind you, you know what day seven's pointing to? Day eternal. The eternal day where there will be no more night, where there will be no more pain or heartache or hurt. A true ultimate Sabbath day. Y'all realize that eternity, it's a grand eternal Sabbath, right? Sundays are meant for worship and rest. We come, we worship, sometimes we get our afternoon rest, sometimes we don't. And to be honest, as a preacher, right, you know, Sunday's normally not too restful, right? For many of us, though, there's coming a day as we point each day, each Sabbath that we take, it is to point to the eternal Sabbath, the day where you and I will rest in the Lord forever and forever. And more so what we find throughout this whole chapter and even in and specifically and I might not get to it tonight, and if that's the case, that's okay. When God separates the darkness and the light, we find the grand scheme of the Scripture. Now, there are many who have different opinions, and that's fine. They're, in, they're entitled to be wrong. <laughs> Just kidding. When we look, what is the grand scheme of Scripture? What we find in verse 3, 4, and 5, day 1, let there be light, and there was light, and then God divides the light from the darkness. And even as we back up to last week, uh, last Tuesday, at verse number two, that the earth was that form and void, as it's preparing for life to come, preparing for there not to be darkness, but preparing for day one, for light to literally burst forth onto the scene, it's pointing to this word called redemption. We look at the scripture as a scarlet thread uh, throughout the blood of Christ, throughout those who are in the faith from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation. We find that all of Scripture points to God redeeming man. Where, okay, you go um, look at this. Verse 2, right? It is preparing for verse 3, where God is about to redeem from the dark face of the deep and the, uh, the void and the without form. And then God says, let there be light. And then He's about to form it. And then He separates the light from the darkness to show an eternal theme. That there is darkness, there is light, there is a kingdom of darkness, there is a kingdom of light. You and I, when we were born, we are born into the kingdom of darkness. 
And then when we are born again, we are born again into the kingdom of light. We go from darkness to light, uh, an old nature to a, a new nature. We find that we are redeemed, is bought back, restored, made right, redeemed. The Old Testament shows, and many of them, as we would say, are much in the dark as to not seeing what is to come. They are trusting in the coming Christ. Everyone in the Old Testament got saved the same way you and I did. By grace alone, through faith alone, in the coming Christ. I, I firmly believe, and as we're going to see this, I, I believe that each little boy that was born to one of these faithful moms and dads who trusted in God, the Lord God, firmly believed or prayed that they could be the one who would bring forth and birth the Messiah who would crush the head of the serpent. There is a depth here that everyone is longing for redemption. How about the New Testament? We are in some ways in the light because we have seen, looking at the past, the present, and the future of the coming of Christ and who He is and what He's done. What we find in the declarative statement of God, let there be light, that it brings about this eternal separation between light and the darkness. And the light and the dark do not coexist. They cannot get together. They cannot walk together. They cannot be together in the same room. Literally, they can't be together in the same room. Right? Sounds like some Baptists don't. Right? Oh, that's right. That's another message. But light and the dark. You won't find the two in the same room. Why? Because the light overtakes, overcomes the darkness. And that is what God is demonstrating as He says, and let there be light. And there was light. If we were just to read the first two verses of Scripture, we might end up going, ah, what's going to happen next? It's dark. It's not formed yet. And then God says, let there be light. And it shows an eternal perspective that light will always prevail, that God will always redeem His people, that God is in the light because God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. We've talked about this in 1 John. It is abundantly clear who God is and that the light and the dark cannot be together or to coexist and i'm sure you've seen them maybe not so much around here but the coexist bumper stickers that have the different um religious symbols on them that make up the letters coexist coexist is a wicked vile thing why because light can't coexist with darkness as a matter of fact there's coming a day where they won't coexist with us because they don't really want to coexist with us now there's coming a day when God makes a new heavens and a new earth that it's described that wherein dwelleth righteousness and nothing and no one that is not righteous shall enter into those 12 gates of that new city, Jerusalem. So guess what? There will be no coexistence. And there will be no more night there. It will be forever and forever and forever and forever. Light provides life provides truth it represents everything that is pure uh, uh, just a few examples and this is this is what we'll finish off on tonight i tried <laughs> john chapter one discusses about the light do you see the references here no i didn't give you the references i'm sorry that's all right John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, 
And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. The way that you and I read the word comprehended, we think the darkness doesn't comprehend or understand the light. That is true, but the word comprehend goes a little bit deeper. It goes to that the darkness does not want what the light is. You go, how do I know? Well, we move on. Verses 7 to 10. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light. This is talking about John the Baptist but was sent to bear witness of that light, which is Jesus. That was the true light, which lieth every man that cometh into the world. We move over to John 3, and here's the answer to that question is posed. John 3, verse 19, And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest and that they are wrought in God. Then we find in chapter 8, verse 12, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He would even call his church the light of the world as long as we are in it. Then turn with me now to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. I want to read for you verse 22. We're going to read through verse 5 of chapter 22. And this is how we'll, we'll end the night. Revelation 21 verse 22 says, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty. Each one of those words is a point in a sermon, and that's one sermon itself. Not just because I'm a preacher, but because each word represents something deep and revealing of who God is. Moving forward, it says, and the lamb are the temple of it. The word temple and tabernacle are much the same. It means to dwell. The temple was a place of worship. There will be no need for a building to go to to worship. Why? Because it says, as we move on, the answer will come. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it. And the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, and they shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever.
Genesis 1, 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. An eternal light. It shines in the darkness. A light which draws you and I to repentance. A light that is eternal that will bring us to an eternal day and light that we just read about at the end of all things. After all the judgments, after all the tears, after all the pain, the heartache, and the sorrow, and the wrath of God being poured upon the creative world that He has made that has rejected Him and defiled uh, and been defiled by their sin, that God will restore and redeem because that's who God is. And the grand story, the grand account, is that God redeems and that this light is going to draw us to that eternal day. But until that eternal day, as God declares, let there be light, He would declare to you and I in 1 John, being written by the same one who God reveals that book of Revelation to, that we are to walk in the light of who God is. As we read the Scripture, as we read each verse, as we read each word, may the light of who God is be revealed in our hearts, not so that we would have a higher knowledge than others or of Him in our heads, but that we would have a deep, humble knowledge and walk with God in the light in our heart by faith until that day we leave this earth and walk into that eternal day with our Lord Jesus Christ who is the light of that great glorious city. Well tonight that's going to be all she wrote. We're going to pick up where we left off and next week we're going to dive more into each day and how each day truly will build upon the next, and prepare and continue to give us the picture of who God is. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night. Lord, I'm grateful for the opportunity to study your word. And God, I certainly wish I could have went further, but Lord, it just wasn't meant to be tonight. But Lord, I thank you for the truths found in it. Pray that you would help us to dive deeper and dig deeper and to walk deeper. Lord, I believe you've called us to much more than what we often settle for. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to walk in the light, to understand just a glimpse of your glory and who you are, that it might drive us to our knees and to humble hearts that might walk with you. And, Lord, I pray that you would prepare us to go from this place that we might be the light that is in this world currently, Lord, as we would not point to ourselves or even point to our churches, but, Lord, that we point to Christ, who one day is going to be the light of that glorious city that you're preparing for us to dwell with you, that you be our God and we shall be your people. And, you will wipe away every tear, and we will dwell with you forever and forever and forever. And there will be no more curse. God, may our hearts long for that as we read these opening verses in Genesis. May they long for eternity. God, tonight, may our hearts long to seek and to know, to dwell in the eternal things and wait of who you are and what you've done. God, we thank you for your revelation, for what you've given to us. I pray now that you'd go with us and be with us and keep us safe and we meet again. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.